Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. I mean, just the icing on the cake was one of our buildings was getting demoed, and the other building, they're tripling our rent. Neither of which were immediate, but was just like the one-two punch of like, okay, we're already just kind of barely skating by, if skating by, and now we would have to relocate not only a tap room, but a tap room and a production facility. Christina and Jesse don't make beer, at least not commercially. They have a palate for bone dry, flavor-driven ciders, and their late project, Redwood Coast Cidery, was their gift to the hard apple cider drinking world, or at least to the Bay Area of San Francisco. So these guys opened a cidery in 2015 because they couldn't find the styles of cider that they actually liked to drink, which sounds quite a bit like every home brewer I knew back in the early 2000s. They opened on a responsible budget, they grew quickly, and they expanded only when it made sense. See, they had a plan to be the neighborhood hangout and to serve drinks to their friends, which also sounds a lot like most breweries out there. So they made a variety of products inspired by flavor, not profit. Brew to be enjoyed, not ticked off and untapped. They were passionate about creating a brand that meant something by crafting products that were true to who they were and how they saw the world. And, like entirely too many breweries with a similar ethos and whatever the fuck the French phrase is for a reason for being, they were forced to close their doors. And in late 2022, they closed both their production facility and their satellite tasting room, putting a period, or at least a comma, in the story of Redwood Coast Cidery. So I caught up with them about a month after they locked their doors for the last time, and they were gracious enough to share their story, the lessons they learned, and their advice with each and every one of us. So listen in, because you're about to learn something. Christina, Jesse, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks most of all for giving an apple bomb fuck about helping all my guests be better in their careers today, which is my way of welcoming you to the show. Welcome to the show today. Thank um, you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get too far into your story, the, your commentary on the booze biz overall and why not to start a cidery, well, which may or may not be the case, uh, <laughs> Wanting to tell you guys a little bit, like, who are you? What do you, you know, where'd you grow up? What do you do? What do you love? All that kind of stuff. Jesse started the company. I came in later, so I'm going to let him go first. Okay. My superhero backstory. I started the business with my good friend. Like, I guess you could say my best friend. His name is Gabe. We went to junior high together. Through a string of circumstances, uh, he wound up dating my roommate and he lost his place to live. He moved in. I, I'm an electrician, so I was working and what have you and slow down in the economy, and I was out of work for a good while. Our good friend Billy worked at Brewcraft in San Francisco. We said, hey, man, why don't you teach us how to make beer? We're just curious. And he said, well, we could start with beer or we should probably start with cider because it's less equipment. 
you know, less upfront cost. And we said, okay, we'll check it out. You know, and so we started making cider and that was fun. And then we moved on to beer and we started making spirits and, and that. And after a while, we were making all the stuff we liked and cider was like our first love. And so... So had you we, drank cider a lot before this? Not really, no. I mean, yeah. I had a little bit here and there. I I, I had cider, you know, I had the, some of the commercial stuff that I don't recommend to anybody. You know, some of the big stuff that was out, especially back then, not to name names, you know, but... Uh, yeah, we wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like they're easy to figure out who the big guys are. <laughs> yeah, they don't need any more free advertising. There was a, a couple of cideries that were local that I would I would check out. I used to, I'd go to Rabbit's Foot. That's a uh, pretty big around here. They're uh, also, they've gone under as well. They, yeah, they were part of that big article that was about all the Bay Area cideries closing within a few months of each other. They were in that article yeah. with us. I'd go out to Two Rivers in Sacramento, which is not too far from us. And it's a couple hours. They, I mean, they're great. When I, when the, there was a kind of a slowdown in the economy, I was out of work and, you know, really thinking about opening a cidery. Nobody would make the cider that we were making. I and I would go and I talk to the owners of these these cideries that when you know I was just a cider fan, I guess, trying to get into it and try to understand what I'm drinking. I discovered that I really like dry cider over sweet stuff, and there was just nothing available on the on the market around here. And what? I I talked to what timeline was this? This was would have been um, ten years ago, eleven years ago. Well, I was right when I graduated college, so this would have been like 2009. We had just started dating when he started making cider, mm-hmm. and that was the year I graduated college. So we're talking like 2009. And did you set out on purpose to make, like, did you make the cider the way that these big, ugly companies we don't want to talk about, the way they made them, and then just <laughs> sort of no, dried no. them out over time? Or did you, when you made it, it was drier, and you're like, holy no. shit, I like this better, and it's kind of ran with that? I learned to make cider from, so the guy who owned Brewcraft is this old <laughs> have you heard of this has this come up on this podcast yet brewcraft in the city uh-huh. in san francisco, in san francisco. Uh-huh. oh it's a big part of like a lot of our stories a lot a lot of local breweries the people got their start there i mean he started in like the 60s and taught countless people how to make beer and cider and ferment anything tiny little homebrew uh, store just like- a little tiny tiny place the guy who owned it grizz i guess his grandfather had an orchard and he would make cider with his grandfather. And it hmm. was, according to him, the only way to do it, you had to take the apples, you press the apples, you natural ferment, and you dry it, you know, you let it go until it's done. And, and that's the only way to make cider. And, and you know, I was drinking that. And, and then I'd try the big conglomerate ciders. And it was like, wow, that's totally different. It was like a wine cooler. Yeah. Know, compared to a wine, you know. But so he so. he was like the person that helped teach our friend how to make cider and he taught us so that that's how that kind of came to be but this guy Grizz was like fascinating he you'd walk in the homebrew store and he sat in this big like leather recliner (laughs) and you'd walk up to him it was almost like paying homage or like paying tribute you'd walk up he kind of like look you up and down decide if he liked you or not and then he'd be like well what do you want to make and you'd say a porter a stout a cider whatever and he had this notepad and he'd write the recipe and then he'd tear it off he'd hand it to the guy behind the counter and then he'd get your stuff like there was no like kits with the recipes like you had to walk up to the guy and be like like from memory he knew he, yes yes. He, yes he could you want you want an imperial you want whatever and he was like all right and he'll write you up a grain bill and 
like everything from memory, you know. And he had like two young guys behind the counter at all times that would like go around and get the ingredients. But like if you pissed him off or you like he didn't like your face, you weren't getting a beer recipe. He just like, like get up. It was off. a whole thing. It was like a San Francisco like institution. Was, and even if it's wrong, that's the legend I'm sticking with. <laughs> you could go shop around and buy whatever you wanted, but he if you approach him and talk to him for a little bit, he'd he'd just write you a recipe for whatever you wanted and send you off. But it was a whole experience. But I think, too, the reason we arrived at dry cider was because um, we were trying to make very alcoholic cider. Right. And just by virtue of making alcoholic cider, it's going to be on the dry side. (laughs) I want to ferment all the sugar into alcohol (laughs) and then throw some other things, too. So you guys are developing this recipe. You're making them over. You're you're talking with other people that are in the industry, and they either refuse or aren't able to make these styles of cider. So you decide... Hey, there's a hole in the market. I got to plug it. What, what, how did that come about? Basically, yeah. I mean, I was out of work and we'd make a keg, a couple of little corny kegs and make a keg of cider and we'd drink that. And when we're done, we can't have cider again until we make it again. And, you know, you got to go through the whole fermentation process. And then, you know, cider is much better, in my opinion, when you age it. So it's like it's months before I get to enjoy cider again. So we started kind of ramping up a little bit and making more and more, fill multiple carboys and get things kind of tiered. And then I'd approach the professional cider makers and say, hey, you ever think about doing something dry? I really like it. You know, and this is what I would like to drink. And I think other people would too. And it was just, they pretty much flat out refused. At that moment, I realized that there's some kind of a niche in the market. I can't be the only guy out there. Can't be the only people out there that like that kind of cider. And we were getting a lot of positive feedback from people about it, too. And a lot of people that would say, like, oh, this is what I had in Europe. Went to England when I was a kid during something, well, like 21 and over kid, college kid. And, like, I had cider like this there, but I can't get it here. And it, Or there was this one, like, supermarket in Vallejo that has one brand that I can drink, but that's the only other thing that I've, like, had that's like this. So I think we just saw the opening and, and we were like, there really is a need for this. No one else was doing it at the time. And Jesse was unemployed and Gabe was in between jobs. And it just like made sense at the time because we had the time and the resources to start working at it. And what we were making was pretty high test. So we, I, you know, I work in the construction industry and I share it with friends and, you know, they're like skeptical, like, oh, cider, it's for girls. And they, you know, drink a couple pints and they big men were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> They called it fall down juice. Right. You see, you got them with the so, booze. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it kind of encouraged me that there's a possibility that even though, you know, we were talking 10 years ago more, that people who, who looked down on cider and thought it was like a girl's drink or something could actually try it, enjoy the flavor and be kind of swayed. Cider definitely is, has a branding problem even still. <laughs> I, I talked to you a little bit about them when we had our pre-interview, but yeah, there's still a big branding problem. I mean, with cider in the industry in general, it's still considered a more feminine beverage or a lesser beverage, or it's still like put on the same shelf as a white claw. I mean, it is a craft beverage, but it's not, it's kind of not held in that same regard, if that makes sense. Cause it's not wine and it's not beer and it's people just don't know what to do with it. So I still think we're suffering from that same branding problem that we were suffering from all the way back. We opened in 2015 and I, I it's gotten better, but it's not, it still has a long way to go. Sure. We were already having to deal with that. Like when Jesse would bring his stuff to work, we were already dealing with that branding problem before we had a brand that we needed to be worried about. 
Yeah, it's interesting because there are there's entire books written and entire in other industries that that's considered a blue ocean, right? That's the whole untapped market. But even craft beer in general, and yeah, I've talked about this many times on this podcast. The idea was that we were going to take down big beer and we were going to change the world in, into enjoying flavor. And as of right now, we've got a 13% penetration into the market and 87% of America thinks craft beer is gross and doesn't buy it. We've lost that battle. And so clearly, same concept with, with cider. You're, like, you're trying to change the entire concept and you know, basically a decade later, you're still talking about it. It, it clearly hasn't worked somehow. I heard a, a, a statistic and I'm going to get it very wrong. This is a long time ago, but it was such a small percentage of people under the age of, I want to say 26 had even tried an Anheuser-Busch product, mm-hmm. you know, and that was very different than, than what it had been before. Right. I mean, that was like everybody's first beer was Budweiser or what have you, you know, and, and I guess maybe I'm wrong. I thought the, the industry had, had changed at least somewhat. Well, what they're finding out is that while they didn't drink an Anheuser-Busch product, they also didn't drink beer in general uh, as, a, as a rule, oh. not as much. So that that's the cider, the craft cocktail, yeah. uh, mixed drinks, obviously. Those are definitely taking off in that Gen Z thing, and it just, just isn't materializing. And then, you know, the guys that were just killing it 15 years ago, buying a case a week, they're just not drinking as much for very obvious reasons. They've aged. So there's and it's kind of this weird hole Oh, in the yeah, 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 <laughs> that happens. Right. <laughs> Interesting. My first beer was a Blue Moon. I think that says my age exactly. <laughs> Ever? I don't know if I remember. Ever was a Blue Moon. Yeah. It was yeah. probably a Bush I, Light that I took from my dad. I would think, um, based on the timeline. But what was your first beer? Oh, Budweiser. Budweiser. Yeah. My dad's truck didn't start unless he had a can of Budweiser in his lap. For me personally, that was one of the hardest things for me to break. Of all the things of growing up, to like, you know, at some point you've got kids that are riding in the car with you. You know, they're seeing the news, the internet. Like, I can't drink and drive, but I did it for way too long, and I gave it up, you know, by the time they were, like, 13, when my daughter was like, really, Dad? Really? Like, okay, fine. I'm not going to drink in front of you anymore. So, <laughs> But I just, oh, that was so fun. I love it. It might be a different world here, in, you know, in California. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. We Open can't drink, we can't drink or... anywhere. It's The pandemic has changed things a little bit, but, like, we weren't even allowed. To, if a bar had, like, like, a porch and the porch wasn't complete, like, you couldn't even walk out the front door onto the porch and, like, lock your car and someone would yell at you if you had an open container pre-pandemic like it's so strict yeah no, don't get me anywhere. wrong it, it was illegal as hell i just still did it but yeah no, I... oh okay <laughs> <laughs> well there's that too <laughs> uh, but no everyone we're in the bay area too and so people are partic- particularly worried about following every single regulation here because like we're, we're really under microscope most of the time the but, law is pretty powerful here the, yeah. i mean the first time we even were allowed to drink under easy ups in a parking space we we're like who's coming for us who is coming for us? They said we could do this, but we don't quite believe it. Did they tell everybody we could do this? It's like, it was so weird. Yeah. But, uh, somebody's coming uh, after us, yeah. there's no doubt. But uh, so then I got into the company a little later because at that point he'd gone back to work and Gabe was, was doing things kind of on his own and it just didn't make sense. Like, so I was, I'm a graphic designer. We'd had our son and I was working part-time. I was at work one day and I was like, working on these like email blasts for the holidays. And I was crying because I was like, I'm never going to get this done in time. And like, I'm not going to get home to my, to pick up my kit. Like I was so worried. And then I was like, it just hit me. Like, why am I crying for someone else's company? Like my <laughs> husband has a company. If I'm going to, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about crying too much. 
but if, if, if I'm going to be shedding tears over a company, it should be my fam- like it should be my family's business. Like it just didn't make sense for me to continue to work for someone else when he had his other his company that he didn't have time to really pay attention to in the same way because he'd gone back to work full time at that point. Yeah. Someone had to make money. Right. <laughs> someone had to. OK, so let's back up just a little bit. How did you guys pick the location that you originally opened in? Like what was the plan and and, and the equipment, well, how did you pick the equipment? So we are in an area. We're on the, the San Francisco Peninsula. If you're familiar with the Bay Area at all, San Francisco is kind of at the tip of a peninsula. And then we're the next county down. So we have the ocean on one side, the bay on the other side. San Francisco is north from us. San Jose is south from us. My partner and I, we grew up kind of in this area. I grew up on, in the mountains. My partner grew up across the highway from the beach. So we wanted to be close to where we're at. And we didn't want to have to drive far to, to go to work, you know, so we want to do something cool where we're at. So we found a spot that was relatively inexpensive and what really sold me on it. Because so our original concept, we want to make working class cider. And the spot is a half block away from the training center for my union. I figure apprentices like to drink, <laughs> like to drink a lot, you know, before class and after class. So I thought, well, you know, at least I'll some of those guys will filter over probably. Yeah, so. so we ended up in San Carlos, which is pretty much in the middle of San Jose and San Francisco. It's like maybe a little towards San Francisco, but our spot was directly along Highway 101. We also, I feel like when we were doing our permits and stuff, because the city had had a lot of luck with Devil's Canyon, who's like the big brewery in our area. So they were they were already kind of excited. So they had Devil's Canyon. They had maybe like five wineries at the time. And this is like a tiny little suburb. Mm-hmm. And so they already had a lot of luck with tap rooms and alcohol industry. And they just, they seemed really open to us. We had looked at other cities and that was the one city that was like, yeah, great. Come on. Like they, they just seemed a little more hospitable That's at true. least in the beginning. I mean, they, they were, we never had any issues with the city, but um, we probably would have liked a little more <laughs> yeah. leeway and, you know, but uh, they were, they did what they did and they, you know, did their jobs, but they made us feel welcome. They even ha- had a couple chamber mixers. Remember, I went and yeah. worked some chamber mixers. When it came time to source equipment, basically, we built almost everything out of my pocket. We got some small loans here and there a little bit later on, but by and large, everything came out of you know what I earned with my hands. Mm-hmm. We bought some some tanks that, well, we started out and we, actually, we were fermenting in IBC totes, you know, just really DIY. My We came out of the, the DIY punk movement. You know, and so we try to do everything we can ourselves. And so we got these IBC totes. We're fermenting in those. I wanted to scale up some. And so I, I actually bought some 500-gallon stainless fermenters. But so IBC totes, for anyone that doesn't know, are the lar- they're the large plastic cubes that are like kind of wrapped in a mesh metal. That They're food grade and they're mostly used to transport liquids. So you, a lot of times you'll see them on the back of like a flatbed truck full of juice or milk or like they're they're meant to transport it's what most cideries use just to transport their juice from point a to point b before it becomes cider and we were using them as fermentation vessels yeah. i've seen we're not the only people that have done it, i've seen a lot of wineries do like, it it's not exactly rare yeah. but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they also so weigh I'm, like 1500 pounds so i assume you had a forklift to move them around <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> we, we, we blew out a jack yeah we blew out a pallet jack i had soup that thing up and fix it Eventually, we got a walk behind forklift kind of thing, but that was years later. That was years later. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
we, we wound up, I mean, I, I scrapped and scavenged everything that I could. You know, I bought things, I build things, I'd hire friends who are welders to, to build us things. I, I bought a, a, I get, I think it came out originally, it was built for biotech, but it was like a, we use it as a bright tank that I bought from Devil's Canyon, actually. Equipment was mismatched, right? We got 275 gallon totes, we've got 530 gallon tanks, and then I've got a 180 gallon bright tank, you know? And so I can't, the, the Legos, I got different brands of Legos, yeah. they don't all fit together. <laughs> a friend of mine was demoing out an old, or a, a biotech company, and they, they had a 500 gallon fermenter that was, you know, they were going to throw it away and said, if you can get it out, you can have it. So I, <laughs> I, I hired some dudes and we got it out of there, you know, and, and it was only being used to hold distilled water. It was, it was really, it was, it was, I don't know what they were doing in their process, but they would filter the water. It was filtered, deionized, and then ran through a still. And then it went into this tank and it was hot. So they had hot, pure water. And they were going to toss it. They were just going to throw it away. A biotech company got pushed out of their rental by Zuckerberg. It was oh. Facebook pushed them out. Yeah. No, that's a big, story. our areas all, <clears throat> yeah, that's the story around here. Somebody Facebook with more money or, is always coming in. Bill. Yeah, we built the boat, Jesse, we built, Jesse <laughs> built the bottling line. Yeah. I thought how'd, he had a pretty clever construction too. How'd you figure out how to do it? Did you go to, like, to a brewery and watch the, what they had and then try to copy it or... I, I looked at some stuff from like, I, I watched videos on people like, you know, homebrewing and, and what they would do. And, and I kind of looked at what was available because I, I work in mechanical trade. I have familiarity with some, you know, materials. And, and so I wound up just kind of coming with a concept. I drew it up and then I built the thing with, you know, I bought some of the materials I had to buy new. The other things I, I sourced, you know, in different ways. I, I bought sprung load lid you know, spring exploded hinges for things, you know, and I just made it happen. It, it worked. <laughs> it worked. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, what I want to hear about is kind of how you made the cider, especially now you had to scale up from five gallon cornies to 27 five gallon tanks, excuse me. And um, I also want to hear kind of how you went to market and all that kind of stuff. So let's take a real quick break. And when we come right back, tell me how we do it. Sure. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, thanks for sticking with us. So like I said, I want to know a little bit about kind of like how you chose what to make. And we talked about it needed to be dry, it needed to be different. But a couple of things. One, I think it's interesting, the little bit I know about cider, and I would love for you to correct me and probably most of our listeners who are in the beer side of the industry, we can build a, what, five, 450-gallon batch of beer, you know, half of Isen or a Goza even for three to 600 bucks and then add whatever for hops uh, and you got 450 gallons. My understanding is that apples are dramatically more expensive and yet 
you guys aren't selling for that multiple more. It's not an $18 six pack or whatever, but now that you've been in the industry, tell me a little bit about how that works out. Like, what does it cost to make this stuff? A, a, a tote of juice, you know, is like, I mean, it depends on what you're getting. Just like grain, you can get your basic bottom of the barrel grain. You can get some fancy stuff that you're making some fancy beer with. You can get a, a you know, a, a tote full of cheap juice. You can use concentrate which is that's where the money's at. Right. So that's the big divide between us craft cider makers versus the bigger guys is we use real juice and they're using concentrate, which also very much affects our margins. Like using extract versus... Right. For, you know, 500 gallons, just say like it could cost you just in raw materials like 400 bucks, whereas what we're making, it's going to cost 1,000 to 1,500 depending on what you're getting and and we're selling it for the same you know, we're we're in a competitive market you know mm-hmm. and so you know the craft brew guy is going to sell his six pack for $15 $16 whatever it is and, and ours basically has to be the same and we never went with the canning the six pack route we went with the single bottles 500 milliliter bottles and we're we're selling our cases for 60 bucks i always thought we were I think we were going a little too cheap. That was the wholesale price. And I think that was on the bottles. What's that? I have a thought on the bottles. Yeah, it was. We shouldn't have done those bottles. Because this is what this podcast is about, right? We should not have done those bottles. Yeah. There's, it 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 was was an odd, because they were how much? 750? No, they were 500. 500. They were an odd size. They were a one and a half serving bottle compared. So they were basically one and a half size of a beer bottle, but less than the size of a wine bottle. No one knew where to put us on the shelf. They could not be packaged in a four pack or a six pack. And they like when I went to go sell them at restaurants, they'd be like, oh, so how many servings is this? I'm like one and a half servings or yeah. whatever, like one and a half. Servings. So if I'm going to a table. Right. And I'm pouring in the two, the two glasses. I have two partial pints. It, it either needed to be two. Uh, uh, I mean, I think it should have been a single, a single bottle. I mean, like yeah. a pack of bottles, but. One and one half servings was not. We should have been in like the tall skinny wine bottle. Or the tall skinny wine bottle. Yeah. And we did this solely because we're into retro stuff. And we thought that the bottles looked cool, like old beer bottles. And we're like, it was aesthetically pleasing. They looked good. But the functionality, if you're selling to a supermarket or you're selling to a restaurant, sorry, I just had this revelation right now, is that you need to have something that's a serve size that's compatible with the drinkware at the restaurant. Right. Like you can't have them t- like walking and waiter walks up the white table, got two pint glasses and they're pouring half pints or three fourth pints. It just didn't work. Yeah, it's weird. Also, so, did I mean, you guys sell to grocery stores? Yeah. 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 That is a hard format in the grocery too, just because the price point puts it in the middle too. And then I, I, don't, I don't know if you had these conversations, but in Texas, they, they have since 16, I think was really when the onslaught kind of started. They just been systematically ripping out large format all over the state. Some of the independent bottle shops still have them, but for the most part, if you're looking for a 750, you're fucked unless it's a wine bottle. And what's happened is that price points didn't make any sense, but I talked to a couple of guys and they were like, well, here's the deal, dude. Buy a case. There's 12 bottles in it. It takes up one spot on the shelf. It takes me on best case scenario, six weeks, three months more likely to sell through that entire case. If I buy a case of six packs, six turns, it's gone usually in a weekend and I'm rebuying Monday. They're like the margins. There's there's no reason for me to hold 750s in my store and 500. Same thing. It's just so they've yeah. all just taken them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, that totally makes sense. And um, it, they, like I said, they looked so cool and they had that retro vibe that we were all about because everything we did like was, and we can talk about packaging and stuff more later, but we were trying to kind of convey this like 1970s, you're on a Harley motorcycle on a mountain road, like this, this vibe, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they worked for that. But like, as far as they were, they were super hard to sell. And, and if someone was out there starting a cidery or a brewery, I would not recommend going with that size. It's just too odd of a size. They were hard to source sometimes too. Cause like not a lot of people used them, but, uh, yeah, I'd go with, uh, I'd go with a more standard size. Cause you always want to stand out and be different, but then it's also like that can hurt you too. You know what I mean? I mean, then it kind of goes back to, we originally, you know, wanted to be a blue collar cider. I wanted to, to be making it for the working man. And woman, what have you. Person. And person. Sorry. And, you know, we, we try to sell our, our cider to working class bars, dive bars and that kind of thing. And, and honestly, we didn't do very well there. Mm-hmm. But where we did great was high end market. We did great in, in fancy restaurants. We did well in, in like the, the more upscale grocery stores and, yeah. and, Wine bars, specialty yeah, grocers, white tablecloth. That I, was our vibe. I feel for like, sure. like the label in that, you know, translated, but like it the did. bottle size, the shape, I, I think just didn't translate very well. And yeah, we should have gone full. I would, if we had it to do over again, I would have gone wine bottle. Yeah. Or, you know, tall, a tall, skinny 500 milliliter bottle. This is, and it's the same volume. It's just taller and skinnier and people, it's like, Seems more imperial, I guess. It's a you know perceived value. There's other folks that have their stuff in similar bottles to what I'm describing, and you know they're selling it for seventeen dollars. You know it's it's retail for seventeen bucks, and ours is retailing for like eight fifty nine bucks. The bottle so, didn't look expensive. Right. I think it's, that was the other problem. Yeah. So it was like a bomber bottle, like it like it looks like a white stripe bottle but taller. Oh yeah. Um and or sorry, red stripe. The I band is that. white stripes. Yeah. So, you know the red stripe you make in lager. Yeah. It looked like that bottle, but taller, and it just didn't look expensive. So we were retailing them for seven ninety nine, and I think in a different bottle it could have been twelve ninety nine easily. Easily, yeah. Well, since yeah. t- you brought that up, so I'm I'm actually was waiting to open a cider until we uh, had the second section, and um, I actually have a seven fifty from Argus Cidery here in Texas. This is a bottle from like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, and it oh, wow. spontaneously nice. fermented in a seven fifty. This is like eighteen bucks on the shelf, and it sat. They could not sell this beer or cider, excuse me. Really? And it honestly is one of, has always been one of the most amazing fermented beverages I've ever had. It's dry, it's crisp, it's acidic. Even as a guy who likes beer, and this is my last one, so I'm going to, I'm going to open it. My buddy, <laughs> my buddy Jeff. Oh, I feel honored. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, a great we product. It sounded like that they're uh, kind of, they have, were on a similar kind of trajectory as we were doing a lot of different styles of fermentation, not just doing a straight ferment across the entire product line, but experimenting with wild yeasts and barrel aging and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that was going to be yeah. one of my next questions, kind of an easy lead in, uh, which may be for you, Jesse, but we started as a blue collar concept, you know, every man's cider, right? And then kind of morphed into being unique and esoteric and and how did that come about like what was the creative force that said no i gotta make badass cool shit that's expensive instead <laughs> uh, well i i don't know i guess uh i guess i overestimated the the palette of of the the average average man so to speak 
I've just always been interested in experimenting and trying different things and, and what have you. And, and I mean, I get it. My tastes are not everybody else's. I totally get that. What I like, you don't like, vice versa. Totally cool. I, I started experimenting with different yeasts. I, I co-ferment with different fruit and I do different stuff. I, I've always been interested in, you know, taking a concept, whatever it is, and changing it you know, twisting it, seeing what else you can do with, with any given medium. Did you have a supplier Cider that was sort of a inspiration at that time? Like somebody you'd kind of look up to or whatever that was... No. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, I like the idea that we have these concepts of, of this is beer, this is cider, this is wine, this is spirits. And I, I really liked kind of breaking that down. And, and we were making, early on, we are making graph, which is a beer-cider hybrid. I loved making it. I liked drinking it. And unfortunately, in California, totally illegal. Yeah, licensing you didn't cannot work do for it because it uh, grains well, in your. Excuse me. Yeah, if you're yeah. a brewery, you can make it because you have grain and you're just adding apple juice. Because apparently, for whatever reason, you can just do kind of whatever the fuck you want as a brewery around here. Uh, but in, as a cidery, we're in not California, allowed, yeah. the brewery they can do a lot more no. than we can as far right. as what they can and can't manufacture. Like they can make hard seltzers. Which I'm still. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, even I even asked the ABC. I was like, "Hey, you know, this is what I want to make. This is what I'm making at home. I want to do it." And they're like, "Fuck no." <laughs> so. And they can uh, make ciders too, but only well, under a certain once, amount. Once you get the a small brewery or large brewery, the large brewery license, they can make cider under their license. Small breweries can't do that, but they can add fruit juice of any kind to hmm. to their beer. The liquor laws make no sense. You, I went to uh, San Diego right before I opened the brewery, uh, 2011, and I can't remember which place it was at, but I remember they had that Jinro stuff, which is like a, I think it's maybe Korean, it's Asian, I don't know where it's from, I thought Korean in my head, but it's like an Asian spirit, but it's low alcohol, like 18% or 22% or something like that. And so because it's, un- something. Yeah, it's under whatever the level is in california that as long as it's not up to x abv then it's this license and you can sell it at a beer and wine place texas doesn't work that way if it hits a still you can't sell it so we can't do that and there were these bars that had these cool cocktails made with these things but were you know they didn't have liquor they had that instead and i was like that's a great idea for a brewery it's illegal in texas only in california i'm sure there's stuff vice versa too it just all these laws don't make sense they just because they're laws that have been put on top of other laws. But like It's like we're dealing with this hodgepodge that no one's ever really taken the time to detangle. And, um, yeah, like yeah. we're still dealing with stuff that was put on the like, for prohibition. It's like, California okay. has gotten better, but it's still three or four years ago they went and they kind of changed up the laws. They, they tried to clear some things up. And some things got a lot better. Like, for example, around here you can only have the tax burden – drastically increased if you went over nine points or 6.9%. Mm-hmm. So every cider on the market was 6.9%. At least it was labeled that. Right. So you'd right. walk around like a cider vet, 6.9, I'm like, wow, we're all so good at this. Like we're right. getting right to 6.9 every and time. They changed it to 8% or 8.1 is where the, the tax drastically increases. And immediately overnight, suddenly everyone's cider went from 6.9% to 8%. Overnight. Uh, or somewhere. Even up like on the eight. shelf just magically came over. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden you were saying yeah. like 7.5. You're like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a brewery in the, my it, hometown here that I really like. And they're, they're friends of mine. They're great. But they have all of their ABVs and all their beers go out two decimal points. I'm just like, fuck you, dude. 
There's, you're not making it to decimal <laughs> points every time. Fuck off. But I love them, so I love them off. Liars. What were some of the early beers that, or ciders, excuse me, that you were just like hitting, swinging for the fences, making weird shit? Uh, maybe even some batches you had to uh, dump. Like, what didn't work? I made some some sizer that was sizer is honey it's, cider. Right. So you add you add honey to cider or honey to the apple juice, co-ferment it, and Instead you know of- I go dry, and so I dry it out completely. And I don't know if you ever had eaten bee pollen but bee pollen kind of tastes like honey kind of but it tastes more like the flower than the honey tastes like the flower that the, the pollen came from or, you know so i use this like wildflower honey i don't know what kind of flowers they're from there was wildflower and and so i dried it out completely instead of it it tasted like eating not lawn clippings necessarily but like mm. it, which cider was it was so some early. Very early on. So it was like, it tastes like if you went out and picked some daisies and ate like the leaves off of the daisy. <laughs> Selling this. So this is an early experiment. Okay, I was okay. trying stuff new. It was, it was odd. But I mean, I drank it. Don't get me wrong. But We did I, a stingy nettle cider oh, yeah. for St. Patrick's Day. Hmm. We're like, here, we're going to be super clever. And we're going to do a green cider, but it's going to be stingy nettle. Because you can eat stingy nettles. All you have to do is put them in. Blanch some, them a little bit. You blanch them. It, it kills the things that make the sting. And, I want to um, make something green that didn't have artificial stuff. That's something, I try to use organic juice yeah, whenever I can. Try not to use any kind of chemical additives, anything like that. So I'm like, what can turn green? Nettles turn stuff green. It so. was brown. And <laughs> our <laughs> lovely, lovely friends drank it anyways. Yeah. Trying to think what else we did that I was super. To, my first first attempt at hibiscus cider, which it was one of our, one our of big our sellers, sellers the, yeah. the Costa Rica user. So I, I was making it a carboy, you know, test batch, and and I put the actual hibiscus in the, the the carboy, and I wound up stopping up the block. Oh yeah, and it exploded. Boy oh boy, I had a I, it was it was just. All over the ceiling of my garage, there's chunks of hibiscus and there's, you know, juice dripped everywhere. It was like, it was a huge mess. It's like blood red, basically, <laughs> yeah. It's what they make the Jamaica Aqua Frescas at the Taqueria out of is hibiscus. And it's that crimson stain. Every, like, you can dye your hair with it. It's like <laughs> stains everything. I'm trying to think of some of our, like, fails, like stuff that we thought would be great and just did not work. Uh, I, I really, I like, I, I love Belgian beers and I love... love or the fact that so many of them, you know, they're just, it's like wild ferment. They make it work, chill. It gets infected with, you know, the, the yeast that's down. And so I, I try to do a, a apple cider or apple strawberry co-ferment and do a, a, a open ferment with it. And it, it just turned into a nasty mess. <laughs> do you use whole strawberries? I, I, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, a pureed whole strawberries pureed added to the juice and, but what was like a flavor idea that like did not fly? Coffee. Coffee. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Musta crackish. The uh, uh, Four loco and Sparks, you know, when they had caffeine in that and they, mm-hmm. they made that illegal. And I was like, in honor of that, I wanted to make some kind of a caffeinated alcohol beverage. So you can't add caffeine, but if your product naturally has caffeine in it, then it's okay. Right. So normal could- cider makers would go with Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> or chai and jesse goes with coffee. coffee i wanted i wanted coffee cherries but they're not that easy to get a hold of yeah uh, you know the, the fruit coffee beans come from and so i'm like what the i'm gonna try coffee see what happens and uh 
it was a uh, it was an interesting experience but uh it didn't didn't pan out Gosh, very we had well. one other flavor that just really was like we liked it but it was just such a hard sell on everybody i'm trying to remember what it was we had a mango habanero cider and jesse hates spicy alcohol he hates it i love spicy love food, spicy food salt, i mean habaneros scotch bonnets given to me i love it but but he hates spicy alcohol. And so we had a contest. It was like a March Madness. So you, you got a drink and you voted. And he told everyone in the bar for a month. He's like, if you make me make this, I'm going to punish you. Like, if you make <laughs> me make mango hamnero, I'm going to punish you. And so he, it was ridiculous. Like you had, you took, like you'd put this much, you'd put like a tiny bit in your glass and then you'd have to fill the rest up with regular cider. And it was still too spicy. Really? And we just had of the stuff it was like yeah. I, how much did you make it was what about like the last time we made it how much did they like, make so the recipe changed over time so originally i think we made like 100 150 gallons and that we we had for a very long time people actually drank it they liked it you know the people some of the people were requesting it again and we we changed the recipe a little bit so it wasn't so painful and punishing and uh and actually it, it it came out pretty nice the last the last time uh, yeah and i just remember the uh, last time we made like 40 kegs i was like what are we doing with our lives like this is not (laughs) it's sold the next time it's sold yeah but it was like that first time there was like chunks of jalapeno oh yeah it was oh so for pride we used to do rainbow flights Mm. so once Mm. a year we'd break our rule which was no no artificial anything and we do these uh rainbow glitter flights it's like edible <laughs> edible glitter, cake glitter. Yeah. so you'd hold it up in the sun there's it, like I it was pearlescent and sparkly it looked it's so beautiful. like like a really cool bowling ball look it, you know that kind it was of... super cool it got a lot of attention at events but for some reason i don't know whose idea it was they wanted to do black as part of the rainbow so we dyed a cider black and all of our regulars went home and thought they were dying the next oh. morning <laughs> That's not good. Yeah, it, it carried right through the digestive tract. And for some reason, like green and purple didn't, but black was just like the whole toilet bowl. Apparently, was just like, yeah, everyone thought they had like liver failure. Lots of experimentation. Sometimes it comes out. Sometimes it doesn't. So obviously, you that guys was had, our big like Instagram success was the rainbow flight. Obviously, you guys had a lot of fun with the uh, kind of recipe development and the different flavor profiles. How did you pick the names and the artwork for the labels? Did you so, see any of our names? Because we're legendary for our ridiculous names. I saw a few of them, and admittedly, I don't know what the fuck they meant, so I assume that you're going to give me some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that? So, death, or death Grip on Shawgoth's Handlebars? Yeah. It was a, it was That's a, a hop, hop and elderflower. Basically, so we're trying to kind of educate public a little bit about what cider is and what can be and, and change opinions about what cider is. And so we try to kind of go with branding that was a little bit more. I always say mature. 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 Masculine. Ma- it was a little bit. more masculine, but uh, yeah. You know, so we were like, I, I like motorcycles. And so we're like kind of a motorcycle theme. Our, our logo, Christina designed, uh, is a, is a old Harley wheel. And the apple, the the lug nuts are apples, which people always miss. I didn't you see, see that. The yeah, it's my little thing that I write so in all the logos. Almost like ninety nine percent of our names were related to motorcycles in some way, whether you know be like a motorcycle part or the idea of like a a ride to a place or or 
you know, some aspect about motorcycle culture. Like Cruiser is a kind of motorcycle. We had the Costa Rica Cruiser. We had uh, Finnegan's Triumph was like a center me with Irish ale. So Finnegan mm. Triumph is, you know, from British Isles. Alec Reed. Alec was, Reed. Was a... So Alec Reed, let's get, let's dive into something. <laughs> Alec Reed was a, uh, he was a Catholic priest that negotiated the, the peace between Sinn Fein and, and the British government, basically. The story behind it, we made a batch of cider. We had 500 gallons, good juice, and it went sour. It, it got infected with something and I was pissed. And I, my son at the time, you know, walked into the front. I opened the valve. It was going down the drain and I took a little video of me flipping it off and I was like, fuck this. And I was pissed off. And she comes, walks in and what the fuck are you doing? I closed it. She's like, well, let's at least chill it and try it. I was like, okay, fine. And so we did that. We filled a keg, put it in the, the walk-in and, and the next day we tried it and it was actually, wow, this is actually pretty good. It's tart. It's like a sour, you know, it's, and, but it was, it was good. And so. Which apples kind of already take... have acidity. What, was it just more acidic or was it right. a, kind of a different acid yeah. profile? It was, I mean, like if you've ever had a beer that, you know, has been infected and kind of gone sour, like any, any sour beer basically has been infected or inoculated with, you know, a yeast strain that's going to make it more tart. And, uh, and so it was very similar to a sour beer. You know, I, I was trying to think of something that was like, we started out with an Irish ale yeast that got infected. And, and so I was trying to think of something Irish to go along with that. And I was just thinking about, Someone who made a bad situation better mm-hmm. by his own his own grit, right? And so, Alec Reed was a pioneer in that in that way, and so I named it for him. So we, but we did a lot of history references. We did a lot of local history references. We had the um, Ember Norton, right? So it was a San Francisco character. From... It's a double entendre, but he was a he's a real person. Um, during the gold rush era in San Francisco, that was the de facto mayor of San Francisco. He says, probably not so mentally sound man, but he proclaimed himself the king of San Francisco. His name was Emperor Norton. There's also a motorcycle called a Norton, so that became the Emperor Norton. And that was actually really cool because there was a local um, history chapter that showed up and they have an Emperor Norton festival and they showed up with the guy dressed as Emperor Norton, like. <laughs> And he was posing with it. It, it was super fun. So and he said it was satisfactory. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, e Clampus Vitus is the is the, the organization history club that drank there. Uh, yeah, one of their sayings that when they're like something, they say it's satisfactory. Man, that's uh, um, but we didn't passionate. do a ton of labels. We didn't do a ton of labels because we no. only we we mostly sold um, direct. So we had two tap rooms. We sold to people directly. So. The only, we only did like maybe four labels the entire time that actually went we out. had more than that. We, we, we did only because I was going, I, I thought we only had a couple and then I was going through everything when we closed the shop and cleaned her and clean things up. And I found a lot of labels that we had done that we just kind of well, put to the side. Well, a big part of it was, and, and it's changing now, but the labeling laws were so strict on us that we really, and like took forever that we really had to be like, do we really want to bottle this and put a label on it when we can just put it in a growler and send it with someone on their way? Mm-hmm. And so there was a few products we ever felt like it was like we could put the time and effort into actually spending the time to buy the barcode, register the barcode, make the label, send it to the TTB, get their feedback, make those changes. Like 
and we were flying by the seat of our pants. We're always, we were turning stuff around. Like, I mean, our board never stayed the same for more than two weeks at most. And so it was really hard to be like, commit, let's commit to this flavor. This is the one going in the bottle. And then let's start the six, eight week process of bottling, getting the labels printed. Like it just, it was so hard for our style because we were doing such small batch. It was really hard to put the legwork into getting Especially, stuff mean, into bottles. Making making stuff with fruit is a lot different than making things with grain. Like beer, to me, beer is a science. You know, you add X, Y, and Z, you treat it in this way, and you get this product. Whereas cider is not that at all. It's it's an art. It's dancing Every year, the fruit is different. Yeah, it's, we're not it's, dealing with the same ingredients. It's either. so climatically affected. You know, if you have dry year, if you got a hot year, if it's cold and wet, if it's hot and wet, your fruits can be very different. And if your sources, if you don't have a secure source, you don't have your own orchard or something, you know, if you're buying juice on the market, you're going to get what's available and what they, you know, people are sourcing for you. You know, the time of year that you're fermenting, if you're not, you know, don't have a climate control or you don't have a have a jacketed tank that you're keeping at a certain temperature. So the same product we'd make in the summertime would be vastly different than something we're making in the winter. Hmm. You know, we were making with a Saison and, you know, Saison yeast. Ferment it hot, it's going to have those iconic flavors. And you ferment it cold in the wintertime, it's going to be completely different. So it was very hard to commit to something to put on a grocery store shelf because in my mind, when you decide this is going on the grocery store shelf, that has to be set in stone. It has to be the same every time. And we just had a hard time ever figuring that out. And I, I don't know about other cider makers and how they deal with it. But like when you're selling directly to your customers and you have dedicated cider tenders and they know everything about your product, it's really easy to tell someone, hey, by the way, this batch of strawberry is a little bit different. And the reason why is because it's winter. So we were dealing with more white flesh and less red flesh. And so now we have uh, like we would have a strawberry cider that would come out cider color, like just that <laughs> classic cider color. And sometimes it would be bright pink. And when you're there and you're like, hi, you know, I'm your cider tender. By the way, we just switched kegs. And so now our strawberry cider is white and it used to be pink. People are very understanding. You can't do that on a grocery store shelf. There's no one there standing next to your product saying, hey, this is why this has now changed. And what we noticed was the general public when they're in your bar, when you're, they're with you, they love that. They love being able to come in. It's almost like a secret club if they can bring their friend in and say, last week it was like this. And I know that because I was here. And this week it's like this. But there's no forgiveness from bars, restaurants, or grocery stores if your product is not like consistent every single time. And we definitely lost some bar accounts as a result. Definitely. They just didn't want to work with us anymore because they couldn't like like a... You know, a sports bar is not going to deal yeah. with someone whose cider is like nuanced and like slightly different color every time. And oh, don't mind that. You know, don't mind that it's a little different this time. Just pour off one pint before you pour everything else. Just do that. And they're like, no, we're not. We're we're not doing that. Yeah, we have the same um, issue and the other Th- those kind of accounts don't work well for anything kind of esoteric and outside the lines at all. And I will give credit. There's a local brewery by us called Hop Dogma, and they told me that they actually have a contract. They have people sign before they take on one of their kegs. Really? And I think that's genius. Yeah, because a big issue we ran into, again, with having a fruit-based product was people, our stuff has to be refrigerated at all times. We mm-hmm. cannot be stored in a hot alleyway next to a dumpster. We don't filter, we don't sulfur, we're not... So I was telling Hop Dogma about it, their head brewer, who's also named Jesse, 
And he told me they have a, a contract saying like, you're taking on our keg, you're paying for it. If you don't refrigerate it and like it goes bad, we can't help you. It has to be refrigerated. It has to be in these conditions for you to, to ensure you're getting the product that you paid for. And so he said then like all of a sudden that was a big turning point for them because all of a sudden they're like people will take them seriously because they now signed something. Yeah. Whereas I, I can say to them in the face, hey, you guys, this has to be refrigerated. They're not going to take me seriously unless they sign something saying they're not getting their money back. We never did that, however, but it's a really good idea for anyone who has a product. Because I know, like, there's beer products that are also need that kind of, they also have to be refrigerated at all times. They're not all Bud Lights, so. Wow. Even the yeah. ones that don't have to still should be. It's still a food product. but it probably still should, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. But that that's a good idea because then it, it also limits the, the supplier is choosing accounts that are willing to sign that contract. And so then it's up front. We know that this is how it should work, and you know X Y Z accounts just not a realistic outlet for us, and just it kind of levels the playing field a little bit. Yeah, we had a friend that wanted to put us on in San Francisco at her bar. She said they don't refrigerate anything; they leave everything outside in the alleyway, and they just put ice over the lines, like bags of ice, and that's how they cool their beer. And I was like, nope, we're not a fit; (laughs) that's not going to work for us. That sucks. And there's more of that than people realize. Like we had that issue in Texas too. There was a guy that they had all their beer stored, the, like the backup kegs, in a room at Ambient Temp in Texas, which gets to 110 in the summertime. I'm like, that's not going to work. But everybody sold to them because they were one of the eight places in San Antonio you kind of had to be. And then everyone's beer tasted like shit when it went online. Imagine that. How that works out. This was a particularly cool place too. But yeah, I was like, no, I'll, because I'll be serving vinegar is what's going to happen though. And I, that doesn't help my reputation, even if I'm in the cool place. Yeah. She's not going to be cool so. with it either. Cause she's you know, it's not going to work. No one's going to like it. So right. Right. No one's going to want to drink vinegar. Well, so let's take a quick break. And then I want to talk a little bit about kind of how that distribution piece worked. And then I think maybe we can delve right into what happened during COVID and the ultimate collapse. So let's, we'll be right back. Sure. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to accubrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. We are back, and uh, so we talked a little bit about how the cider went from your um, cidery out to the market. But talk to me about that a little bit. Like, so you guys chose not to go to distribution through a wholesaler at all, right? Yeah, we were yeah. self-distributed the whole time. Sorry, I shouldn't put my hand. The money just wasn't there with distributor. There's a small handful of them around here. They're, the cut that they want to take, basically, we'd be maybe, maybe making $5 on a cake. You know, it was a lot of work that goes into it for yeah. for five bucks. So rather than be sending out kegs for basically no money, we decided that we self distribute. So it kept our our market, you know, penetration so to speak, very small. You know, and our 
distribution was was very small. I mean, we were mostly in this county. We'd take stuff up to San Francisco or, or down south to San Jose. We'd cross the bridge, take it to the East Bay sometimes. It was not very common. <laughs> it was more as an advertisement for the tap room is how we looked mm. at it. Like we wanted people to know our name and to look us up. Although we did have some diehard people come out of that, like DJ Silverback. Right. We were like, I was walking around the grocery store one day and wearing my Roco Cider hoodie. And the girl was like, oh, do you work for them? I'm like, oh, no, I'm one of the owners. And she's like, there's this guy. <laughs> and he buys your cider every day. And like, literally, he is like, takes the shelf and just like puts it in a shopping cart. You need you need to find this guy. And so finally, I figured out who this guy was. And he was a local reggae DJ in our area. And I was like, hi, um, how about I'm going to drop off some growlers at your house and you leave my cider on the shelf. Like, I will continue to supply you with cider, but like no one else is getting my cider because you're you're pulling all 12 off the shelf. Like, and he's like, I just love it. I'm like, that's fine. It's more cost effective. Buy it as a growler. And so I ended up developing this relationship with this DJ and he started doing events at our spot, which was super cool. And then other people got to buy our cider, which was like, it wasn't that the cider was still selling, but it was selling to like 12 different people instead of one guy that was just going on his shopping cart. But it was, it was always more of an advertisement for the cider bars, which were what made the money. Delivering kegs to to bars and restaurants was always a bit of a challenge. We didn't have a dedicated delivery vehicle. I had an old truck that I, that we used for the business that it, it worked some, my, my partner would drive stuff in his, in his Kia all over the place and, and, uh, do what you gotta you know, do, right? Like a couple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You do what you gotta do. Was um, the truck one of those was, ones that doesn't really start without a can of Budweiser in it? Or was it a different kind of truck? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was like driving truck is a whole thing. It was almost like a rite of passage. If you were like part of our crew, <laughs> don't spit out that cider. It was like, oh. if you were like, in our crew was a rite of passage to move the Tacoma. It's your turn to move the Tacoma into its parking spot because it can't be front taking. <laughs> it was a it was a stick shift. Shifter is like up here, and it was like brrr, like sorry, people can't. Think. But it was up high near your face, and you'd be like, okay, let me shift into whatever gear. I love that truck. Yes. I know you do. I bought it brand new in 1997. But uh, <laughs> it was like the clutch caught like a half centimeter. You know, like when you step down, for people that don't drive stick shifts, you step all the way down, you want your clutch to catch as your foot comes up. Well, this one didn't until your foot was basically at the dash. And so it was just, it wasn't just driving stick shift. It was like, it was driving the Tacoma. So it was like, if you were in our crew, you had driven the Tacoma. You'd moved the Tacoma. So that's what we were delivering in for the most part. That, well, and the key. Yeah. Oh, so in in my business, uh, there was definitely, um, you know, people like to think of it as, business closes down, goes out of business. It was just one big drop. But for me, there were a bunch of different like ups and downs and good months, bad months, overall net bad years, I guess. But, you know, in the end of the day, but you know, for you guys, like what, how did that look? Was it steadily growing and then it stopped or? It took a long time for us to, to kind of start growing at all. Just getting the, the word out that there was a place making cider locally and getting people actually interested in that was difficult. You know, the first, I don't know how long, we'd, we'd open up and we'd be hanging out there. I hired one of our, our friends as a bartender and, and it would just be us hanging out in the place all night, you know. And, yeah. and eventually people started coming 
and then filtering in. It was it was cool. I think we hit a certain point where we where we plateaued in the town that we we're in. I think that most people that wanted to go out and have experienced some craft beverages like had discovered us and were I, I think we just kind of plateaued with the market that was available to us. We decided to try to expand a little bit. We opened a second location, the next town over, basically, in San Mateo. A, f- a friend of ours described our original spot as like, it's like hanging out in a garage. You know, it was you know, a brewery. It was a cidery. It was, it was a place for making stuff that we had built a tap room in the front. It was nice, but it was still like cinder block walls, industrial, that we tried to make cool, but it was still, it was industrial. And we, you know, the, the second place we opened was a lot more polished. Uh, it was on a uh, downtown San Mateo and in on B street, which is like kind of the, 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 that's the commercial street. That's the, the place to be. And, um, we're next to all the fancy restaurants and art galleries and that kind of thing. What was the and impetus so our, to do that, that you were busting at the seams at the original location, or were you trying to get a different segment of the market by having the new place? A little bit of both. Our tap room would Fill. Our tap room would fill. Like I mean, it, it was, a, it's a small place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and so we, but... it would fill, and you know, it was pre-pandemic, so you couldn't go outside. It, so it was like just our, it was like seven hundred square feet or so, and it would, it would fill up all the tables, the chairs, people would be standing, and and so we decided to, you know, another spot, and it would expose another segment of our region to what we have and and we did get a lot of criticism from people saying that you shouldn't open two or you shouldn't open two chapter we always call them chapters you shouldn't open two chapters Motorcycle in people. such close proximity i know i actually don't think that was an issue at all i really don't think one ate the others because like, aren't you worried all the regulars are going to switch to the other one and you're just going to have split your regulars between two places and there was some regulars that did switch because it was closer to where they worked or where they lived but it was minimal i actually don't think that that was an issue for us at all having two places it expanded our our reach we, we got a lot of new people in fact that it, it was a, a bigger space and a more populous area and so we I think that our our customer base probably I mean, more I, than tripled. I would say. I would say, yeah, yeah, more than tripled. Yeah, and so it was good. And it was also a younger crowd too, because like the place, the downtown area we were in is where all like the tech people have lunch and go out for drinks after work, and so we were getting a lot more foot traffic from a younger crowd, which was cool. And also, being in, in an industrial area, there is zero foot traffic. So if somebody's coming to your spot, they're driving they're coming there. to yeah. your spot and they're driving there. Cool. That was another thing, too. If you're looking to open a place, you should keep in mind that like so our industrial location, you had to drive to get there. So people would cap their drinks off at a level that they felt safe driving home. <laughs> if you open in an area that's in a downtown area, well, they should, but no. They try to. But like if you open in a downtown area like we did with a train and Ubers and people live walking distance, the the drink per person number went from maybe like two per person to four per person. And it could be even the same exact person. It's just they're able to get to a train versus having to drive home. So that is something to keep in mind is like public transit and like proximity proximity to houses. housing. And because in down in a downtown area, people that live there are on a high rise apartment building. So it's like a lot of people per capita. And I think that did help a lot. I think yeah. that our average drink per person went way up in our downtown location than it than it had been in our industrial location. So we opened that in 
October. And then what? when did lockdown happen? After all the time and, and expense of open place, I think it was nine months. I don't know. It was, it was, it was less than a year. It was less than a year. When, yeah. When COVID hit. No, it wasn't even that much. Yeah. I mean, it was lockdowns for us from was, March. I think you guys were probably a little before, but before, yeah, yeah, it it, it was not long. But it was like, February, so we opened in October, and then February we were locked down. Right. The first couple of months were really hard. You know, after opening, it was a, it was a new thing for the town, and and people had to discover us. And you know, the first couple of months we were we were you know in the red, and then right before COVID, we were like. In the black, we were making money and it was looking great. And, uh, we, you know, there was so much anxiety when we put ourselves out there and spent all that money to, to build the space. I was so happy that, you know, it was actually working. We really, we put ourselves out there. We, we, we spent a lot of money and we, we built the longest bar in San Mateo. Um, yeah, it was really? a long bar. 37. Yeah, 37 feet of, of oh, redwood slab. And here's another fun story. So the front door to the opening of the bar where you walk behind the bar was at the opposite end of the building as the front door, which was fine when you're just standing behind the bar. But guess what? When you're serving from a front door, so every single time you'd go fill, you'd have to walk the entire length of the bar to make that turn to come back around to go to the front door. This was uh, during the lockdown, they... they yeah. Right. Every time you fill a drink. <laughs> they let us sell. People couldn't come in, but we could sell growlers to go. Oh, so you to take so the order at the door, go back around, get it. At the door and walk the all the way. Yeah. Yeah. And so weight. I was doing it on my roller skates and it worked great. <laughs> and not a single person gave me a compliment. I was, if I walked to a bar and there's someone on their roller skates serving me, I would at least say like, hey, good job. You didn't fall. But no, no one even, everyone was like... Everyone was so blasé about it. They're like, yeah. they just like threw a tip at, like a two dollar tip at me, and I was like, I did a spin. If you no were, one cared. If you were in Texas, they would have treated you differently. My brother. Oh, was. I know. <laughs> Texas has a. Texas is good to the the roller community. I do know this, but um. My brother lives in. But Tiburon, yeah, it was. And so I was up in Tiburon in uh, August, actually, staying with him for a concert, and I had a blast. It was one of my favorite things to get up in the morning and run down the main strip and just say good morning to people mm-hmm. as I was running. They were like, what, what, what the fuck? What the fuck was that? Like, what? You don't. Cause it was like Texas being nice to people in San Francisco. They're like, this is weird. So, you know, it, we're nicer here. Yeah. San Francisco, I think it's, it's kind of like New York. I mean, everybody's busy. Everybody's in a rush. Nobody has time. And, you know, nobody wants to interact. They got their mind on something else. It gets a little friendlier as you get further away from the city. I will say that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm not surprised you- that people were like, huh? Are you going to rob me? Like, what's going on? I had a blast just looking at people's faces. It was great. All right. So COVID happens. You're locked down. You're doing the best you can. Obviously, there's a big issue on, you know, the output. It finally gotten to where you wanted to be. You transitioned primarily to growlers because bottles are still a pain in the ass. So that's what people were mostly buying. Yeah, mostly growlers. And then we had, we experimented with a couple different uh, smaller vessels. We had swing top growlsh bottles. Mm-hmm. Which were cool but expensive. Do people return them? Were you doing like that coming? Kind of so what we would do is we would charge like so prior to COVID, we'd actually use them as cider. We can fill smaller things. I think beer, the smallest you can fill is crawler. The how big is a crawler? Thirty. It's thirty two ounces. Thirty two ounces. So as cider, we could actually fill a sixteen ounce Grouch bottle. But so we had like you deposit two dollars and brought it back. Then we. 
the two bucks. But in, during COVID, we didn't want to do that because we don't want people sharing glassware. To be honest, I don't remember if we were chart. We might have like added a buck or something or like they cost us $2 each. We were like splitting the difference. And so I think we added a buck and then we moved to Mason jars and those just really didn't work because they uh, don't hold carbonation at all. And they were not, they just weren't. People like them. People like, well, no, yeah, I got that no. one really not here. I got that one snotty email from that, that one guy. Some some guy emailed me and he was like, just so you know, if you were looking for feedback, these jars don't hold carbonation <laughs> and they spilled all over my Tesla. And I'm like, okay, thanks. No one asked. Thanks. Yeah. So, cool, cool. But then we settled on these screw top cans. I don't know if you've seen them, but they're like, they look like... Twisties. Twist top. Yeah, twist top cans. Twisties, I think, is the company. So yeah. they look like a crowler. have a... Because we couldn't, we didn't have what it took to invest in a crawler machine, which I, I hear are very expensive. I mean, they're not too bad, but at that time, you know, we were pandemic. We we're like, I don't want to be investing in another expensive piece of equipment. When we, right. we might be going out of business. Yeah, yeah, at that point. Right. Well, and that was the other hard thing about the pandemic is you didn't quite know where to throw your resources because they're like, it's going to be four months. It's going to be six months. So you're like, mm. like. Had we known it was going to be like almost a year and a half, two years, we may have made other choices. Like we may have invested in that machine. Instead of going to the, to the, to the cidery, the brewery, what have you, the winery to get your, to drink there and then take stuff home. People were going to the grocery store. They're trying to limit their exposure. Mm -hmm. So they go and buy all their stuff at the grocery store and with their food and take it home. Honestly, I feel that we probably should have invested more in in the wholesale market, selling more to grocery stores, because mm -hmm. that that's what was moving at the time. That's that's really what was happening. I mean, what, you know, we didn't know at the time it was supposed to be two weeks. Remember that? Remember it was two yeah, weeks. Yeah. yeah. So we didn't we didn't maybe invest our money the way we would have had we knew, like knew we were going to be sustaining over the long term. But actually, the growler sales is great for us, and we were making it happen. Because you made it happen. Thank you. For anybody, anybody that's like struggling, you know, opened a brewery or a cidery, what have you, and is struggling. Like she was talking to people on on social media and working it, and yeah, we we were we were allowed to actually deliver door to door growlers, and so hmm. she would take orders on a Monday, and then go and fill them all on Tuesday and then drive around town and deliver I mean, I drive around like San Jose to San Francisco, like, which yeah. is huge. And you know, what was crazy is my best clients were mother's clubs. I don't know if you, you said you have a kid. Was there mother's clubs in your lives at all? No. So there's these like groups of moms that like, if you have a child, you get paired with local moms that are, have kids the same age. It's called the mother's club, be the San Antonio mother's club. And, and they're, they're national. And I would, someone, some lovely person, because you can't spam their groups, right? Because that's rude, would pick up on my post and she would say, hey, my friend Christina owns a cidery. Let's do a group order. And I'd get 40 orders, like for 40 growlers. And I'd drop off at one lady's house and then everyone would come and pick up from her. Oh, that's And cool. that was amazing. Like, Pacifica Mother's Club, I had four boxes of growlers and it was like, so cool because I didn't have to go to each individual house. I could like, I had a hub and then they all did reorders from me. But yeah, I was, I was in my car like four days a week, just dropping growlers off of people's houses. But I think what Jesse's trying to get at is don't rely on just one. Don't just do it on your website. Don't just do it on your Instagram. Like if you're really trying to hit the pavement, like get your personal Instagram 
whatever email list you have. Say, yeah, don't. Because I was getting, anybody. I was getting no, no, don't spam everybody. But like, I was getting no traction on because of the Facebook algorithms. I was getting nothing on the Rebel Coast Facebook groups. But on my personal group, that's where I was getting all the hits. Hmm. So, and I wasn't annoying. I was just like, if anyone wants growlers, and I just post a photo of our menu. This is what I have this week. Let me know what you want. Text me. And it was very like grassroots, and then like I know not. I learned pretty quick not to give out my own personal number. So I got a Google number, which could turn on and off throughout the day. And I had a Google number people could text and call me on and, and I'd take orders. And and that kept us in business, basically, was right. that. So and that- then we would do, uh, we would sell, like Gabe would take one location, Jess and I would take the other, and we would uh, just have growler sales from the front door. But we were only doing that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it wasn't every single day. Because like, you have so- to choose, you know, how to use your... What I'm saying is, is like, I mean, if you have a like micro brew, if you're a nano brew situation, like you might need to find that venue, you know, people that might be enthusiastic about what you're making because they have a relationship with you in some way, whether it's a bowling club or something, you know. It, it, a lot of it had to do with me being a mom. A lot of it had to do with that. And then the other thing I would do is I would do live videos of me filling everyone's growlers and mm. I would like put the camera up. Like, hey, so this is Cynthia's growler and Cynthia's getting and I'd fill it and talk and people would ask questions about what I was pouring. I always sold like six more growlers doing that because people wanted that personal engagement. But I like made lifelong cider drinkers from doing that. Like people that had never had cider in their lives are still drinking cider to this day because of like my weird little Facebook live videos. I don't know if that would work now with the pandemic, but it worked really well then. Pandemic changed lives yeah. in many ways. So made people start drinking cider. <laughs> yeah. So how did that, um, how did that finally like kind of go where it stopped working? I guess was like at some point, I guess it must have. So around, around here, I know that the country is, every region has a different response to the semi post pandemic world, but people are still pretty shuttered around here. I, you know, I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying all the time, but the crowds are not out like they used to be. I'm talking specifically hyper locally. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I talked to guys across the bay that commute into work and that and they're like it's not like that where i'm at when i go home like everywhere is just filled to bursting with with people you know doing whatever the county that we're in i i think we have a lot of older people i mean there's a lot of younger people too but i think that the people are more cautious that the crowds just aren't going out like they used to i look at places you know other other you know breweries and and places that that would have down the street, our friends at Devil's Canyon, they would have, I mean, it would just, they have a huge space and they would be open on a Friday night and it would yeah. be just. They're literally in an airplane hangar. Right. Their it's, it's tap massive. room is an airplane hangar. And now, I mean, I'm not saying that they're they're not doing business. I mean, they're still successful and I'm glad for them. The crowds aren't there like they used to be. And just I, to I think come it, back. It's, it's, I think it's just the culture of this county. Maybe this just micro region. I, I hope things are loosening up and changing. It just didn't come in time for us. Yeah. It comes down to. So, you know, we, we got to a point where our our monthly output compared to what we're bringing in wasn't really working. And the fact that cider is a niche beverage, it's not, I don't mean to demean beer drinkers at all. I'm a beer drinker too. But I, I think that it's, it's easier. It's more accessible. It's more culturally entrenched. Yeah. I mean, have a, have a beer after, after work, right? There's not as many people are like, hey, let's go have a cider after work. It's not part of the sure. American culture. Yeah. 
And I think us being a cider only bar also, which we did because of our licensing, had we been able to have some beers on tap, some other things, some wine, maybe I think that would have helped a lot too. Cause I would get feedback a lot like, Oh yeah, I wanted to bring my, my whole after work crew, but I have two people that just won't come into a cider bar. They just won't, they refuse hmm. to even try it. And so I think, I mean, so we were, you know, a cider bar with a site with a winery license, a type of two winery license. We couldn't serve anything other than cider. You couldn't um, even do wine? I think. Like, we, we could, could do, but we we had to either make it ourselves or contract somebody else to make it. Hmm. Our brand, which we could have done. But um, if I think it would have been a game changer, honestly, if we would have been able to have even two beers on tap. I think it made a big difference. The niche market was a big thing with us. Like, it just, we were so specific. And then also being in the Bay Area with all these tech people, we'd have these wonderful regulars would come in every day, every other day, and then they'd relocate. Like a lot of people don't mm. stay for a long time. They stay for a year, they stay for two years, they finish out their contracts, they go home. I think that was a big part of it. And then also, I mean, just the icing in, on the cake was one of our buildings was getting yes. demoed and the other building, they're tripling our rent. Neither of which were immediate, but was just like the one-two punch of like, okay, we're already just kind of barely skating by, if skating by. And now we would have to relocate not only a tap room, but a tap room and a production facility. And commercial real estate is at such a premium around here because anything that can be developed will be developed. And so we're dealing with like a new Bay Area where there's no manufacturing, there's no warehouses, it's all going to be live work spaces. So it's going to be like coffee shop kind of thing on the bottom and then high rise apartments on the top. And we're next to the train station and the highway in both of our locations. And I had a developer tell me like anything next to the highway or a train station is not, that's all going. It's mm. all going to be an office building, building or a live workspace. It's just too value. It's too valuable. Yeah. With that on the horizon, everything's maxed out anyways. Like our hearts and souls are just, we're done. You know, I mean, what would it cost to relocate two locations and production facility? I mean, it's just, we didn't. Here. We didn't and have how it long us. would it take? Like, you can't just do it overnight either. So it's a whole other issue. Right. They rent on two places. And, you know, anything that we that would be within the realm of, of a, uh, you know, quote unquote affordable would have been, you know, probably an hour drive away. If not and, more. If not more. And it, it's it's just how much pain are you willing to, to go through in order to, you know, break even? Maybe come up a little bit. Maybe not. Right. And, it, and it's just it's a lot of work. For not a lot of result. And so much like, of what we loved about our was our regulars. And regulars right. weren't going to follow us that, an hour and a half away. Right. Right. I mean, and that's the, the one thing. Don't get me wrong. I love the cidery and I love the, you know, everything about it, basically. Well, not everything, but <laughs> just about everything. It's just still work. That's the thing that, that really, and I, I, I don't know how many times I've said it, but it's the, the people that, that came out and that, became part of our our crew and became our friends we you know we're good friends like some of our very best friends we've met through this process our That's- tenants in our, our condo <laughs> are all three former bartenders from the cidery really that live in our other house it's 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 weird it's a strange like you know almost a, a strict family if i were to open another spot go through all the effort to open another spot and it's like not acceptable to anybody, you know, yeah. I don't know. It'd be pointless, you know. We, we'd be starting over completely from zero. 
in a new town that no one knows us. And yeah, your model's less based on distribution and like packaging. And so, I mean, it was like a neighborhood place or a regional place, if nothing else. But like that would be tough to just pick up and move. And and, and I I kind of thought about the same thing. Like at some point, we made mixed culture beer in an old crotchety conservative German town. There's no way this is going to work. We should move up to Austin or something like that. But you can't. We we named it after the city. Our whole concept was kind of local, and that, I didn't want to do it. It wouldn't have been fun to me to do it in downtown Austin. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, we had that too. Everyone was like, why don't you just move to San Francisco or Oakland? Like you would do better. But we were just so happy where we were. <laughs> There's kind of an ethos around this, especially in, in like the, the punk scene where like where you're from, it might suck, but make it the make, make it the pl- best place. Make it the place to be. Make everybody love that town because, you know, such cool things going on there. And, and we love our, our region, you know, and Danny Lactose said that from Spaz. Anyone that hits anyone's ears right. When I was driving him home one night from the Tenderloin. So the peninsula where we're from in the Bay Area is like historically a shitty place. It's not a place people want to be. It's, I don't know what's shitty. It's, it, I mean, a working class neighborhood and there's not, not a lot of nightlife city people culture. From the, from the like San Bay, it's shitty in the sense that it's like not culture. Like there's not culture here. We have Denny's, right? Some of the worst and million so dollar homes you'll ever see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's it's yeah, also but home to Stanford and yeah, right, yeah, right, right. But no, but like it's not a place that like you think of when you think of like hip cool things, and and that's changed a ton now. It's totally different now. When we were growing up, so there's a certain point of pride of taking our zone and making something so special and so cool, and making people get on a train from San Francisco and come to us. Like that's huge. Right. Mm-hmm. That meant a lot. Well, I do want to kind of hear about sort of how it how you took it apart, right? Like how it came down. But I also have some questions about the rent piece. So let's take oh, one God. final break. And then when we come back, I say we're going to wrap it up, but I have a feeling there's going to be some important stuff here. So uh, let's be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Alright, so this is the fourth and final segment. This is where I want to hear a little bit about kind of what went down. Hopefully what's going to happen next and kind of how you guys picked up the pieces of what happened. But one big question you sort of brought up and I want to really get into is the the rent piece and kind of what happened as far as the physical plant. You talked about one of them was going to be demolished and one of them was going to go up 3x on the rent. I assume the one going up 3x on the rent was the original location in the warehouse. The one we can't live without. Right. So this is one of those things that I've, and I've had some Facebook debates with some people before on this one, but obviously guy or girl starting a cidery today. They're negotiating with their landlord. They're seeing this happen to you inside of seven years. Is that basically when you first signed the lease? 
we're almost at nine years on the lease. So my, my partner, Gabe, he negotiated three-year lease with two extensions, Okay, which was pretty wise. It was a good deal at the time. It was, it was a good deal. And now, given what rent has done, it's it's a great deal. The building sold. So a new landlord came in. And I believe all of the other tenants in the, this multi-tenant building were month to month. And immediately, overnight, really? their rents all doubled. And so that basically douched out everybody that was there except for two guys. We, you know, we managed to exercise our extensions and, you know, stayed in that spot. And luckily we got a good rate originally. And so we had decent rent that kind of was allowed us to stay in business as long as we did. Yeah. Having reasonable rent at our production facility was was crucial. Yeah. That's the whole point of the production facility. Right. And so we were able to have a small tap room. That tap room was, was paying for the facility itself, the new one. And that one is now making us money. So it was working out pretty well. Of course, COVID hit. We approached both of our landlords because it was locked down. We weren't allowed. In the beginning, we weren't even allowed to sell anything to go. We weren't. We could not have customers at all. We approached our landlords about giving us a break on the rent. Our original spot, they took a pound sand, you know, pay up or get out. And our other landlord said they would reduce our rent by 25%, but that 25% would be a loan. There would be accruing interest until we oh oh yeah <laughs> yeah significant interest that we'd have to pay in the end you know it's it's not a deal it's robbing peter to pay paul kind of situation so we just paid our rent we took it on the teeth for a while and it was difficult yeah so to so going back again if someone's at, at the gates right now negotiating with the broker with their landlord that's pretty normal and that everybody and i've had eight different fitness centers we did a lease on all of the, actually we did nine leases on different locations we would do a five a five and a five, but it was, you know, a bump on the second, a, a slight bump on the third, and then FMV on the remainder. And, you know, fair market value is going to be whatever the hell it's going to be. And you know, no one knows what the fuck's going to happen a decade later. No one expects COVID, but at the same time, if you could go back, like you remember the conversation at the time, any inclination that the real estate would be at the point that it was at, that the landlord could, without a bag on his head, come to you and say, yeah, no, it's three times as much now. How would you even prepare for that? I guess would be the question. Essentially, you don't. It was... Two years ago, you know, we, we saw the writing on the wall. The new landlord, I, I hesitate to use the word bastards, <laughs> but I like they're they were they're they're not flexible and they don't care. They want their money, you know. It's I would say anytime your building gets sold, even if they're saying gonna honor your lease, which they most likely will, like well, they have to. Well they, right, they have to. But I mean like there there's circumstances where things happen, but it's always like probably start looking at contingency plans. Yeah. Most of the time when a building gets sold, they're not they're they're not just buying it to take it over. Like there's normally some other plan. Two years ago I was we were talking about it and I was saying like we should probably plan to move production, you know, find a new space in case that happens. Worst case scenario we have three spots. You know, we can turn one into our wholesale business and keep the original. But unfortunately, because business didn't bounce back semi post COVID, we really didn't have the finances rolling to make that happen, right. to make the new place happen. I mean, we could have borrowed a ton more and just been up to our earballs and debt. But that's something that we really tried to avoid is large debt through the whole thing. And I mean, don't get me wrong, there there was some debt. There always is in business, but we managed to keep it relatively small. If we had extended ourselves even farther and taken those loans, you know, we'd be, what, two, three hundred thousand deeper in the hole at the end than we were. And if you're you're behind a, a corporate veil, so to speak, right? You're an LLC or 
S Corp or what have you, you know, they're not supposed to be able to come after you, but there's ways that creditors, they can try. They can try to come after you for your personal assets, your home. And that's something that, that I had to look at was, you know, we, we live in our home and this is, it's not an asset necessarily. It's, you know, it's not a thing on paper. This is where we live. This is where we sleep every night. This is where I shelter my family from the, from the storm, you know, and, you know, put that on the line for, you know, a business that it's not a raging success, you know, it's not uh, an overnight sensation that is taking the nation by storm didn't make sense. Looking at the writing on the wall, like you have to pay attention to trends in your area and nationwide. And I mean, I know rent is going up nationwide, you know, the real estate situation in the country, this is a whole nother topic. You know, with, with corporations getting involved with buying up single family residences. It's it's a weird scheme that's going on right now that's being perpetrated by my in my opinion, evil evil people. You know, it's driving up prices for people everywhere. And we didn't have there like, was no end in sight right, too. Like right. it wasn't like we were gonna get a new place and yeah, we'll pay a little more for a couple of years and then we'll figure it out. There was just no end. Like it's just prices are hiking and hiking and hiking and there's just no the one piece of advice I could say with how our space was negotiated, you know, looking back and looking forward for anybody that is trying to get into the business like buy your building. <laughs> <laughs> buy the Wait building till you, you can buy a building right. and then you're ready to open a place. Try to negotiate the longest lease, the longest you, can lease you can with extensions, right? So, you know, a couple of years and be able to extend it. If you don't want to, if your business isn't working out, if you want to move, then you don't renew. Yeah. But if, if you want to and you can, then you take that option. And when that lease is, is winding down for good, you know, it's the time to be looking and start negotiating with your landlord early and start looking at alternates for the next place to go because well, you, you have to. And I think the thing that's really hard for people, too, is like the idea of what if you have to shut down completely for months and months to rebuild the next place? Right. Like you and have to have that saved and that ready to go. Right have enough product or to maintain the existing place while you're opening the next one. And that's what I just couldn't imagine us doing. I could not imagine us being on the like kind of shoestring budget we were on, having to completely shutter and reopen. It just wasn't an option. When we started the business, we decided to open a business and start a family at the same time. (laughs) Both of us, actually. (laughs) So there's two. It's Jesse and I and then his business partner, Gabe, and then Gabe has a wife. So when we opened, I think I had my son and we opened... Our first night, I have a picture of him walking on the bar. Yeah, but so I had my son and then we opened three months later. Like he was able able to like walk with somebody holding his hand. Yeah, barely. Yeah. It was like, yeah. So we got the keys to San Carlos the day I had my first ultrasound. Same with Gabe and Jessica. They had Ash and then we got the keys to San Mateo. Mm -hmm. So like don't have babies when you're opening businesses. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good idea. And, And just like the... The life work balance is kind of what I was trying to get at. I had to be there. I mean, because I'm the construction guy, I'm the doer, I'm the, the hands-on guy in, in our partnership. And so I was there seven days a week trying to build the place out. We're paying rent. We got to build the place out. We got to finish things. And I'd, I'd come home and my lovely wife here would be crying, standing there holding a crying baby. And she was mad at me and I was feeling guilty and awful, thinking about having to open another place and take myself away from my family again, Start it, it just wasn't yeah. worth it. That's something that I think that a lot of people don't see. And I didn't see how much owning a business occupies your life in ways that you don't think it's going to. And if you're not prepared for it, it's going to rob you of that time away from quote unquote work. It's yeah. going to rob you of your either family time or if you don't have kids, like your fun time, your your friend time, your 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 hobby time. Which is what I wanted to say about husbands and wives and businesses is we had, before we shut down, a few people 
approach us about investing or getting involved. And someone had had approached us and said, hey, what would it take for me to save the business, right? I was like, well, have you talked to your spouse? And they were like, (laughs) no, no. And I was like, so here's the deal. I've seen this go two ways. Basically, like if you're opening a business, your partner, whoever they are, they need to be on board because it doesn't just affect you. I've seen both sides. I've seen people like Jesse and I that go in together. I mean, it was hard, but it was we did it together. So it was both of our hard. I've seen couples where one person doesn't want anything to do with it. And that is rough on a marriage. That's really hard. And so I will say like, if you're, you know, have a spouse, especially if a kid is involved, it's really got to be something you're both passionate about. It's got to be kind of both of your dreams. Otherwise, it's just going to become such a point of contention. And I don't, it would have been so much worse because back then when I first had Shane, I wasn't involved in the business at all. Really, It would have been so much worse if I hadn't gotten involved. It would have been fighting all the time. Yeah, just it just would have been I mean, it was it was very hard on a You See, if you want to know how you get along with somebody in a in a relationship long term, you like go on vacation with them, travel with them, get a, a puppy and a kitten together at the same time. Really want to test it. You want to you want to throw your life into a curveball. You know, start a business with a. Don't with you a and your wife family. own a business together? Yeah, well, so when we were twenty seven. <laughs> We opened our first business together. We actually opened the doors in March and we had my son three months later. So we did it backwards from you guys, but very similar. We had eight locations. We ran that together and that was great. But when we got into beer, <laughs> it, was, it was a totally different ball. It was a fitness? Yeah. So we, we yeah. were the 37th Anytime Fitness. We were early in that franchise when it first started because we knew the owners um, back in the day and then sold that and decided to get into beer. It was uh, like the exact same thing. It was like, hey, when times are good, you know, the, you don't see some of the scars and scabs and bullshit. And then in the beer industry, it was just such a grind that it strained our marriage for sure. And we definitely spent a few dollars on therapy to fix it. But thankfully, we're on the other side of it now, a year and a half later. Uh, Yeah, I just I think it's something you have to go into together. I just do like, I mean, to make it really work. I think it's really hard to have one partner that's, you know, putting in those long hours and the other person just uninvolved. Well, it's not uh, understanding the stress too. There's a sacrifice to it. and, And especially with this, it's it's time, but it's also, you know, I know a lot of guys that in the industry that say they're quote unquote profitable and they pay themselves, you know, $24,000 a year or something like that. They have this like vision that they're doing well, but their families are not. And so there's that piece of it too, that the other person's got to be understanding that it's not me. It's, it's my boss. He's an asshole. Well, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that carried us through too, is like Jesse being an electrician and a union electrician who was employed through most of this, he was paying the rent out of his own pockets for months when we were opening locations. I don't know how we would have done that without him. That would have been really hard. It's tough. But it's hard too as a wife to be like, okay, so there's the down payment for my house and there's diaper, like watching all mm-hmm. the, and it's just going into an empty building, right? So if you're not part of that empty building, it, it could be a lot worse for sure. I think ultimately at the end of the day, it just, it got to the point where we had fought so hard for so long. We just got to the point where there's just no more fight left. And it, it also just didn't make sense to fight anymore. Was it Am hard I, between the three of you guys to come to that conclusion? Was there dissension among the ranks? It, like one guy wanted to go or? It was oddly easy. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like. I mean, I Sorry. Know. So Gabe yeah. and I, which is funny because there's three of us, his best friend, him and me. And you'd think that having one married couple and then one other person would mean that I'd always be on Jesse's side or vice versa. He'd always be on my side. Gabe and I would often side on things and Jesse would be the odd one out. Sorry, Jesse. Because Gabe managing one location and he was managing the other. So we were the boots on the ground. But it was very easy for Gabe. It was a little harder for me. It was the hardest on Jesse to say no more. Yeah. I mean, we all put a lot into it. I'm very stubborn. (laughs) I, I wasn't ready to let go yet. 
in you know, we had a we had a, a sit down meeting months and months prior. You know, it was like it's like look, things aren't looking good financially. Look at these numbers and where we're going, where the trends are going. I said, well, you know, let's give it time and try to see if things get better, right? COVID's winding down and see if business winds back up. And one day he was like, look, it's like we're done. Like we can't go any farther, you know. And he's he said that he we were done and basically my my take on it was i'm not done i'm personally not done i tried to struggle i mean basically i was the back of the house he was the front of the house right so he was handling managing tap room and i was making cider and uh we we wound up hiring somebody my my assistant became the production manager so she took over for my cider making when i was getting back more into the construction side and uh so i was trying to manage making cider. I was trying to figure out how to run the front of house business. I was trying to figure out how to make sure all the bills got paid and that we got paid for things that were going out. And and I just realized that I don't have it in me anymore. And, you know, it was it was it was too much work for three people. And without that third person, you know, I felt like I couldn't expect Christina to pick up anymore of the, the loose ends and I couldn't do it, you know, physically, mentally, I couldn't do it. And it's when I realized I'm punishing everybody around me by trying to push this thing farther and keep it going. I mean, I couldn't do any, like I was already driving the trucks, <laughs> picking up the CO2, right. moving all the, like I was doing all the physical stuff right. by the end, you know, and it's like, I'm pulling up little blonde me in the truck. Like, hi, I'm here for the delivery. Like it was just, it was getting, it was, it was just I had taken on so much extra effort by the very yes. end that like my my stubbornness was was basically punishing everybody around me. And that's when I realized, you know, it's not fair to everybody else to keep pushing this idea when the, the writing was really there before. I mean, but we explored all the options. We looked we at did. buyers. We looked at someone maybe just coming in and managing like we tried everything. And it's just nothing just quite fit or made sense. Especially, it wasn't when, us. Yeah. you know, the, the business, don't get me wrong, it was a business and I had to make money, but that wasn't why I loved it. That's not why I started it. I didn't start the business to become rich. I didn't start the business to make money. I started the business to do something cool and fun with my friend and be able to, you know, express this artistic idea of, of fermentation and making cider and doing cool stuff. And at the end, like, okay, so we, we could contract brew with someone else and then we had the paper cold storage somewhere else and then i could keep one of the yeah. tap rooms open we, maybe we did entertain that idea and, we had talked about just contract brewing and, and maintaining one tap room mm -hmm. and we're like we're not our managers we're cider makers yeah and well, which one would you have kept down to too like at that point one was being torn down the other was three x the rent like the one the one being torn down we still had four or five years on the lease technically. Mm -hmm. So we think the project was going sooner though. The lease was longer than the building's shelf life. So the new owners of that building, both of our buildings sold. So the new owners of that one, they were definitely going to tear it down and, and they would have to either buy us out of the lease or pay us to move, you know, somewhere. And so I was kind of banking on that, but what it came down to is the business that I was trying to hold on to is not business that I was in love with. You know, it's not the what we wanted to be in it, and it wasn't anything that I, I wanted it to be. I, I was 
we may or may not have been able to hold on to the tap room and then we would have to gone into wholesale business and, and it's just not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be paying somebody else to make my recipes. I didn't want to be paying somebody else to, to, you know, be creative. It just, it didn't make sense. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't what it was supposed to be. Theoretically so. too, when you contract, you're not going to be able to make some of the stranger and more interesting things. You're oh, definitely. Gonna have absolutely. To, yeah. No. They're yeah. not. It would have been like, yeah, it would have been a couple of, of our standbys. I mean, I have this lovely memory of me and the cider maker using the walk behind forklift to like shake something up in a barrel. And she was like sitting on the barrel and I was rocking the forklift. Like no one else is going to do that for us. Right. First of all, not OSHA safe. Second of all, like no one else is going to put that amount of effort into like what. Right. Yeah. I actually interviewed a guy that maybe the fourth or fifth episode, I can't remember now, Dean from New Republic. And they had designed some thing to shake kegs like that because they needed to carbonate them faster. And like, so it was just some bullshit thing. Like, it's just hilarious. We all, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you, you would never do in a contract facility. It's, it's going to have to be one one product, simple, filtered, no fermentation character. And yeah. Like I think the highlight for me, too, we are going out of business is someone asked me if I'd come and work as a brewing assistant for them. And I was like, oh, you guys think I'm real. Like, right. I'm not real. I drive the truck and move the kit. Like, I, that move really, the kegs and make the cider. And move, move the kegs. The cider, right? Yeah, yeah. But no, but I was like, oh, wow. Like, I've actually had, like, because towards the end, I became the cider assistant. So he promoted his cider assistant to the cider maker. I stepped in as the bar, head bartender slash cider assistant. By the end, I was, like, legitimately a warehouse worker. Right. And that was cool. And someone was like, oh, do you want to come work for me? And I was like, wow. I mean, no, no, <laughs> I'm a graphic designer. I make money doing that but it was just so cool someone even thought that i <laughs> like i didn't ask enough skills someone was like considering me as and we and we started out i mean we were homebrewers we'd never ran a business before and we had to make up everything on the fly we had no background in it no higher education in business management of any kind you know, we had to learn everything as we were we were doing it and the fact that cool, people, people actually took us seriously, took us seriously. <laughs> You know, we figured out enough for people to take us seriously was, was pretty yeah. cool. Well, the more people I talk to around the industry, the more that's not that unique. I think we all kind of learned as we go. So to an extent, even when you go to some of well, these courses. I think the secret with the industry is we all think we're phonies and we think everyone else knows what they're doing. Right. No like one we're did. all, yeah. everyone else is profitable and yeah. knows what they're doing and we you know, don't. Which in, in, in the early days, so when, when I decided, I, I, had, I developed friendships, not friendships, but acquaintances, relationships in some sense with, with other cider mates here in California, there was only a, a handful. I mean, there was like three, basically. When I expressed to them that I had interest in making cider professionally, opening a cidery, they immediately turned from being friendly to me to being very cold and very stony. Really? And yeah, and it was it was like they all wanted to protect their slice of the pie. And what they didn't see was that the pie is growing. And if you want the action, their their market share to grow, there's more people up and coming and we need to grow this market. And they can't do it alone. You know, it, it would take more people. And so, you know, we, we were like kind of the first ones on the block around, you know, Northern California, really, that, that were, you know, pushing it. And the first in, in our county, right behind us was, was South City Cider. I think they... Um, they I, opened before we did. They 
opened, but we we started before we them. Started but we didn't they opened, yeah. Open. But they were wholesale only, and we were right. retail but, only I mean, at the time. You know, we we always took the tack. What seemed like in the beer world, like all the microbrew guys are all they all help each other. They they yeah. you know, they it's a community. Whereas with cider, it was it was definitely stony faces and no help. But and, that's... and well, it, it changed as we some other people started popping up, and we tried to we made friends and. South City was our ally, South City, yeah. and they we opened within two months of each other. Right. We went out of business within I mean, two months, right. two months of each other. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of small companies that, that we'd encourage each other, and yeah. and you know that that helped so much for me, and I, I mean I, I hope it it helped other people. And there's there's like South City Cider, there was Tanuki, there was Santa Cruz, Linewood in the East Bay, that love their cider, you know, and it, it's it's a weird thing seeing, you know, this this industry change and then starting to fall apart you know and, and i and i hope that these small outfits find a way to actually kind of help each other mm-hmm. yeah as opposed to what it, what it was like before i mean it was i think they will i mean there's how, how did he put it michael about about us like we we're out to get him oh yeah to, don't want to say who yeah yeah but. so uh, another cider maker in our area um when we opened was like oh yes Rebecca cider they're out to get me. And mm. so what I did, because I'm a cheeky bastard, is uh, his crew was late one day for an event, and they were pouring right next to us. I was made sure I was extra nice, and I unloaded their car for them and got their sign set up because I wanted to make sure it got back to the boss that Rebico Cider was, like, extra helpful because I thought it would mess with him, like, a little bit more because he was already <laughs> so worried I was out to get him. I don't know. It, it, I think it's getting better, and I think that the cider people that are still around, especially like Santa Cruz Cider, because they're so involved with the Cider Association, the Cider Association. I think it is getting better and I think it is changing. I just think a lot of us are, you know, got priced out. So you yeah. saw that with beer a lot where everybody was kind of helping each other. And there's still a lot of that in the industry. But more and more people I've talked to recently are starting to see that while the growth rate for brewery outlets is going up, the market share is going down or staying stagnant. And so it's it's literally on paper. You can see that if you open a new brewery today, you are only taking business from somebody. You're not creating new business. You're not helping it grow. You can see it. Like it's, and that's happened for the last basically five years. And it sucks, but you know, not that someone doesn't have the right to open a business, but at the same time, there's no, there's nowhere to be. I know. And it's weird too. Like breweries, I feel like they group together. Like I, I see like a spot that's very staked out by one brewery and then another place will open like a half block away. I'm like, why right there? Like there's like, there's a whole downtown. Like why right there? I've been seeing more of that lately. I just think that our industry is very delicate and I think it's one that's very important to people and very meaningful. But at the same time, like it's, it's just, it's delicate. It's hard. Like if the people that aren't running it aren't a hundred percent in love with what they're doing, they're not going to keep doing it because there's just not money in it. And there's not, there's so much more work that goes into it than what the payoff ever I think will become unless you're going to go the super big route. And right, if you end up being Lagunitas or something, right, then you're right. doing great. But yeah. But it. it's interesting though, because we all knew like the books we read and like kind of the zeitgeist of the industry back in like the late aughts and like, early uh, 2010s everybody knew you lose money for a decade and then you finally make it back when you finally sell out to a big conglomerate but you don't make money in the interim like the day-to-day of those guys they're taking on debt they're just pushing you know down the can down the road i, I don't know i 
I would be interested to, and I have actually put this out on Facebook before that I would love to interview somebody who's profitable, but they're going to have to give me three years of uh, P&Ls and, and balance sheets. And I had a couple people reach out and they were not, they thought they were profitable, but when we went through the numbers, they were, what about this? Oh shit, that's right. And so anyways, challenging business for sure. I definitely don't think it, it's not going to get any better for anytime soon. Well, but, and people are under the impression we're all printing money. So that's, it, that's the hard part too. It's like all of your friends, all the people around are like, oh, you guys are just printing money. There's people in there all the time. And it's like, oh, wow. There's so much behind the There's scenes. There's so much behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, you, you can know, always make, you can always spend all, more than you make, right? In all honesty, I probably should have just like opened my garage and been serving my friends out of my garage the whole time, you know? I mean, for for the love of, of brewing and enjoying beverages with friends, I probably should have done that rather than open a, you know, a retail location and, you know, got the licensing and done the whole thing. But you don't regret it. No, I don't no, regret no. It. And that's, yeah, that's like not. the weird it's not thing, just, too, here. It's yeah. not the same thing, but no, it's, it's always funny. So the very first episode I ever did was with Chris from a brewery in Dallas, Texas, and Somewhere around the fourth segment, he says, you know, my, my suggestion for brewers is if you really want to open a brewery, you, you're not necessarily in it for the money, go buy $20,000, go buy the best homebrew setup you can get, put it in your garage, just give it all away. You will lose way less money than I ever did. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Which is true. And we, I, I probably sold my brewery for somewhere around mm, three quarters of a million dollars less than it cost me to run it. So he's right. I mean, yeah, he can, you can give it away for a long time for that. Well, I, I know, but I think there's something about us all that we just have that personality type we have to try. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Well, and it's cool to make a brand. Red, 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 Redwood Coast Cider will live on forever as a thing. And actually, great segue. So what's next? What's next for the brand? What's next for the concept? And what's next for the two of you guys? Well, you know, we, we've toyed a little bit with the idea of doing something else, you know, another cidery. A number of our, of our regulars, of our mug club members, you know, were like, Hey, we want to get involved. You know, the next thing we want to, you know, invest. Honestly, I I'm feeling pretty burnt out. Yeah, I'm and, I'm and, very burnt out. And it's possible. Maybe we do something in in the future. For now, I'm my inclination is to kind of hunker down, turn the uh, the construction money crank, you know, and and just work in my my trade and try to spend more quality family time. I know it's kind of a cliche, but like really. In the early days, my kid would tell me I'd come home and, and there'd be conflict in the house because that's what it's like having a child in the in a house. And he'd tell me, Dad, go back to work. You need to go back to work. Because <laughs> he was used to him only ever right. being at work. Yeah. Right. And, Dad, you're, make, you're making problems. Go back to work. You know. And, and now it's like I come home and he's excited to see me. And that is that that's because I pulled away from the cidery some to do my, you know, to work in construction and I could actually spend some time with my family and, you know, actually have a relationship with my family. Sorry, it's a long-winded response to your answer, but uh, I think that I can actually engage in hobbies, things I, I, I like to do. I, uh, like I, I mentioned on the break, I, I have a, I run a fish club. And, an aquarium club. Uh, people, yeah, when aquarium, you say fish club, right, people think no, you're yeah, going So I, I, I keep fish. I love it. It's something I, since I was a child and, you know, I, I, I get to, meet other fish nerds and we talk about aquariums <laughs> and trade fish. Which we were hosting at the cider right. we've now had to move and it's, to it's somewhere great. else. But if, yeah. if you happen to be in the Bay Area, yeah, Bay Area and Peninsula, Fish and Aquatic Society, doesn't cost nothing. 
<laughs> it's fun. I'm a freelance graphic designer and a lot of my current clients I met through the Saturday. So that's been really cool. And I'm still doing graphic design for people that I met porn cider for them. So it's been cool. And I'm just going to continue down that route because it makes me cry less. Sorry, I said I was going to talk about crying and have to end on crime. How do people but, find you, know, you if they want to hire you for that? My website is christinajules.com and I have a lot of experience in uh, labeling and um you know, I know the TV rules and all that, but uh, yeah, that's been just kind of, so I always was a graphic designer through the whole thing and I'm, I'm just continuing down that road. But I think we're taking a break from alcohol for now, from the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Not from drinking. You still, you're going to need that for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, just from, just, I clarified from the industry. <laughs> um, but uh, what about you? Are you opening anything else? No, no. I, uh, I sell Texas no. land now, so. I'm part of the real estate problem, I guess, in a way. But no, it's uh, it's so much more relaxing. I work half as hard and make 10 times as much. Like, it's, it's great. And it's hard to get back into beer, you know? It's like, uh, I even have a weird relationship with it where, and actually, I think I might be allergic to it, which is why I kind of enjoy drinking cider tonight. I'm not sure that I don't have a gluten allergy a little bit, but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, but I don't regret it. Like, I do want to be clear about that. I don't regret it. Yeah. Jesse doesn't regret it. it. It was an important part of our life. I'm glad we did it. Cool. And we wouldn't get to do podcasts. I wouldn't be like in the all these newspapers and on all these blogs. Like I wouldn't have had any of these opportunities had I not done it. And I also think that we need to say that anytime you put yourself out there, people are going to criticize you. We had all the haters. I'm sure you had all the haters. And I do think it's important if you feel passionately like not to listen to those people because everyone's always going to tell you a, a thousand reasons why you can't do something. And there's so many more reasons why you can, right? Yeah. There's so always somebody that wants to tell you, you can't. No matter how stupid it is, <laughs> yeah. go for it. Well, I think it's funny. It was shortly after I sold the brewery and I got out of the industry, I asked somebody, I'm like, no, honestly, who is going to take over as the most hated brewery owner in Texas? Because there was no second place. Like I was across the board, the, or M, maybe, I don't know, the most hated brewery owner in Texas. I got all the criticism. I enjoy oh. it. So whatever. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm an asshole. I'm an asshole in front. So I'll let you know. I really appreciate you guys sharing your story. You guys closed, what, like two months ago? Was that when it was official? October 1st was our official closing date. Two months yeah. to the day. I didn't realize so. it was that accurate. Today's December 1st. We're recording this one. So yeah. So obviously, it's fresh in your mind. It just happened. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share the information with everybody. Any last words you want to leave us with whatever it is that you feel inclined towards whether it's beer or cider or making custom wreaths for people or something silly his mom did that yeah. that's very sweet <laughs> no but make where you're at the cool spot do yeah. something cool in your community you know and, and if it's successful or not at least you did something cool you try to do something and you add it to the to the culture around you i always say like at the end of interviews try a craft beverage that you haven't tried before because i do think it's important like go to your specialty grocer or whatever like try to find something you haven't tried before because it means so much more to us when we get sales right budweiser is not doing happiness every time they sell a six-pack we are so like you know go check out you know where your spots are you know where you can get things that are reliably independently owned like try something you haven't tried before like what's it gonna hurt i think that's, that's super important one of our best customers of, of all times, they went out of business, uh, not because of us, but uh, uh, <laughs> just to clarify, Antonio's Nuthouse. 
Oh, uh-huh. they, the, the bar manager there was great. So my partner, when he was, he was delivering kegs, he'd show up with his baby because him and his wife both worked and he'd show up with his baby in a Bjorn on his chest. He's a, he's a large man. He's, he's well over six foot, big black beard and his little tiny baby. And he'd show up with two kegs and he, you know, struggled to walk into the, into the place. And the woman there, she said, the, the, the bar manager, she said, I'm always going to keep your guys' cider on on tap. It may not be the best selling cider that I've ever had, but the fact of the matter is, is I know when I buy cider from you, it's putting diapers on that baby. Yeah, you know where it's it goes. It's not going into some corporate pocket. It's it's helping a family, and that's you know, like Christina was saying, shop local, you know, and and support your local craftsmen, whatever, whether it be I your cider or furniture makers. I literally do a happy dance every time. <laughs> like when we were selling shirts on our website, I would jump from the ground every time someone bought a new shirt. So like, just, you know, check it out, try something different. It means the world to all of us. Some of us will make it and some of us will make it for a little less, but try something you haven't tried before. It's it's totally worth it. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's the double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.